Okay, you ready? Let's do it. Okay. Welcome back to COINTELPRO. We're excited this week to kick off our show's second series that we're calling False Flag, an American War Story. Our objective with this series is to highlight three moments in United States history when events were manipulated to shift public opinion in favor of war. Oftentimes, we do this show as just two people talking about things we're interested in. Sometimes we have an expert guest on the show. Other times we do not. That's true. I haven't felt the need to do much in the way of credentialing for this project so far. But we have cultivated some connections and expertise in a few areas uh, since the show started. We've gotten to know several high caliber people who write about um, unexplained aerial phenomena in cryptocurrency. I've even begun writing for Protos as a freelance journalist covering the cryptocurrency space. Austin, you were arguably already an expert on the topic of unexplained aerial phenomenon before we started interviewing the likes of Ross Coulthard and David Marler. But maybe before we launch the series, it would be good for Mike to talk a little more about why we get to hold the talking stick for this one. Sure. Although... I want to clarify that this is mainly something I'm doing for those out there who place a high value on this type of thing. The COINTELPRO series that we're starting with this episode is concerned with matters of U.S. history and foreign policy. And for whatever it's worth, I hold two degrees on this topic. I teach about them as an adjunct history professor. I've researched, written, and received grants. If credentials matter for this sort of thing, then there you go. So I guess the first question that we need to address um, before we like really dive into starting this series is why are we talking about, you know, three major points in American history where, you know, the U.S. state is attempting to sway public opinion in favor of, you know, going to war, um, you know, across the sea and whatnot. And so I think for a lot of people listening, the the thing that that comes to mind for a lot of people is the fact that there's, you know, the largest land war in Europe right now, since world war two is taking place, you know, right now at this very moment. And the two of us, you know, we have our, our own sort of sneaking suspicions that a mounted effort by the U S state and, you know, aspects, factions of, the United States intelligence community and aspects of the greater Western intelligence community are going to be working to push, you know, the general public in the West, particularly, you know, the United States to get those people in favor of, of going to war. I think that one of the things that's conspicuous when you examine the history of U.S. involvement and in conflicts that it started or that it's become involved in is how frequently 
events, motivations, uh, and intentions are manipulated by interested factions of the ruling class. And that if you look, what becomes clear is that that's actually the rule. More often than not, the event that we mobilize around has aspects that are false or, or are altogether fabrications. And it's so common in U.S. history to see uh, this occur that it's striking to me that people don't have a better sense of it. What we wanted to do with this series is isolate three very non-controversial moments where this has occurred. You know, I, I think that some in the audience may immediately think of instances where that's occurred. We've talked about them on this show. We've talked about uh, the efforts after 9-11 to expand that conflict by exaggerating or outright fabricating evidence for Saddam Hussein's possession of weapons of mass destruction. Some may bring up the much more controversial example of, well, what did Franklin Delano Roosevelt know about the Japanese plans to attack Pearl Harbor? Was that a condition made inevitable by U.S. trade policy? Why were none of the aircraft carriers stationed at Pearl Harbor uh, on the morning of December 7th, 1941? These are all subject to much more debate. We wanted to tell you a little bit about our three case studies in this episode so that we might be able to dive in with a little bit more depth in the coming weeks to each of these. We want to do this in hopes that anyone listening to it will not be so easily had this time. This story that we're trying to kind of establish here, what comes first? I think the most obvious place to start is where we'll start on the episode next week, which is the Mexican-American War, which built from the Texas War of Independence throughout the 1830s and culminated in 1845 with Zachary Taylor's march past the Nueces River uh, and into the disputed territory between it and the Rio Grande, which is now recognizable as the southernmost extent of the United States, or at least Texas. I think it's important to start here because it is pre-modern, because the state does not at this time have the capacity to project itself and manipulate events, certainly not the way it it would later come come to do. But Jacksonian America, when we use that term, we're talking about one of these first moments that people were voting in large numbers. And now it's important to specify what we mean. We're talking about white men. But the expansion of the franchise to include all white men was uh, new in the United States. Uh, To that point, property had been a requirement in addition to being white and male. And so you see in the 1830s, the development of mass media to the extent that such a thing could be said to have existed at that time. Into that context came a concept of public opinion and that these things had to be swayed 
in some way to guarantee that the state continued to fulfill its function, which was ensuring the broader vision of its founders and framers and and the people that possessed its power. Those founders and framers had in their ideology a concept of expansionism, Mm -hmm. what some people might identify accurately as as just imperialism by another name. Uh, Oftentimes, we talk about U.S. imperialism as though it started in 1898, and we'll get there. But in fact, manifest destiny, westward expansion, whatever you want to call it, is is in fact a brand of imperialism. This is something that we identify very, very easily when we look at Russian history and the way the Russian state spread itself across Northern Asia. Like we're, as Americans, we're sort of like kind of taught to think of expansionism as only actions taking place beyond the physical, you know, geographical borders of like North America um, that define the continental United States. And I think that we we come up with euphemisms like expansionism or manifest destiny that create this sort of teleology, uh, a narrative which has a natural and inevitable endpoint. Mm-hmm. Right, which is that that the United States would would cover the space between the yeah. Atlantic and the Pacific yeah. Oceans, and that imperialism is something else, right? That imperialism mm-hmm. is something that happens outside of that context, and I yeah. think that this is this is mostly arbitrary, and it's right. especially arbitrary when we see that you know expansionism wasn't just moving indigenous people, right? Mm-hmm. It was fighting this yeah. conflict in this case with the state of Mexico, a state which had had a liberal revolution, right, mm-hmm. um, which was a peer of the United States in more ways than we tend to think uh, that it was, and certainly more ways than it is now. So within the this ideology of, of expansion were ideas of white supremacy. And these ideas about what the mission and ultimate destination of the American project would be centered around uh, for many people, and especially for the actors who will move the Mexican-American war onto the table, was the expansion of slavery. And the limits of that vision were essentially only if the land could support slavery, then, then slavery should be there. The efforts by Southern Democrats, Southern citizen soldiers, Southern capitalists, to push American expansion, not just west to the Pacific, but south to the places where it was most geographically viable as an institution is critical here. And it moves in the background of everything that we're going to talk about when we talk about the the Mexican-American War. But what we want to particularly talk about and what is the focus of this series is this incident which occurred just south of Corpus Christi, Texas, uh, between, as we mentioned before, the Nueces River and the Rio Grande. Uh, Soon to be President Zachary Taylor, as an acting general in the U.S. Army, was ordered by President James K. Polk to march his army across the Nueces and into uh, what was at that time, not the annexed state of Texas, but what was unambiguously on a map, Mexican territory. What comes of that move by Polk is a raid by 
by a division of Mexican cavalry that spilled, as Polk would spin it, American blood on American soil. Members of the U.S. Army, members of the American legislature understood at the time that this was a manipulation of the facts on the ground, that by crossing the Nueces River, that Zachary Taylor had entered into foreign territory and that it was in fact on foreign foreign land that American blood was spilled. But this is not the spin that Polk puts on it. And Polk leverages the patronage system of the you know, early Democratic Party and these ideas of manifest destiny to cultivate political support for it. Um, it's worth noting, though, that that support wasn't unanimous. The Whig Party, which existed at the time, uh, opposed it fiercely. A young Senator Abraham Lincoln became known as Spotty Lincoln for demanding that Polk show him the spot on the map that American blood had been spilled. And the reason that Polk wouldn't do this was because doing so would reveal that that spot was, in fact, south of the Nueces and unambiguously in Mexican territory. We're going to sit down with Dr. Peter Guardino in our next episode and talk in a little bit more detail about how this was carried out. But I think what's important for us to keep in mind about it within the context of this short introduction is that from its very earliest moments, the state and its attendant uh, media organs engaged in this manipulation and massaging of facts uh, to preempt American support for foreign war, war which had been started by an act of aggression by the U.S. Army and which culminated in the expansion of U.S. territory to the Rio Grande, which went not just further south, but critically further west. And it's at, at that point that, you know, the southern border that you're familiar with, uh, f- stretching from where the Rio Grande enters the Gulf of Mexico and all the way to California, you know, was established. So our next story takes us to the dawn of American imperialism, to the world of William Randolph Hearst and the sensationalism of Gilded Age media. I think it's important to understand that between the Mexican-American War and the Spanish-American War of 1898, that the modern American state, as we would recognize it today, has come into existence. And it's come into existence largely as a product of the Civil War and the types of demands of modern warfare, and particularly an internal conflict. One of the sources of crisis that opens the modern moment of imperialism is that uh, in 1892, it was announced that the frontier had been closed, that the escape valve that had been seen to make American society function up to that point Uh, had been filled or removed. There was justified apprehension that the United States had to continue to expand. It's worth noting that between the Mexican-American War and the Spanish-American War, European imperialism enters a new phase and that the world and Africa and Asia is divided up among those states and those powers. 
along with this was an assumption or an observation by certain people in American society that aspects of U.S. military power had to be developed. This led to the growth and development of the United States Navy, which will sort of have its first moment, which will sort of have its first moment in the Spanish-American War, Mm -hmm. uh, most successfully in the Philippines, uh, but also with this incident that we're going to talk about uh, with the, the USS Maine in Cuba. We had mentioned that in the buildup to the Mexican-American War, that there were media outlets that peddled the objectives of the pro-war elements of, of the U.S. political class. Mm-hmm. But by the time we get to 1898, we are talking about an industrial scale of media. With it came what is often described as yellow journalism, sensationalism, right? Um, the partisanship and willingness of the media class to to lie and manipulate is, you know, something that is often noted of this period. It's absolutely critical to sort of understanding what happens next. The Cubans rose up against the Spanish Empire, which is in its absolutely dying moment with the end of the 19th century. In an effort to defend the property of American citizens who who were living in Cuba and who were seeing these riots uh, break out in opposition to Spanish control, the United States sent the USS Maine, mostly as a symbol, to sit outside of the harbor in Havana and uh, menace the Spanish and the Cubans into uh, settling down so that the interested property owners uh, with capital connections to the United States would stop fearing uh, for their lives and for their property. On February 15th, 1898, the USS Maine exploded under circumstances which to this day are, are up for debate. Some have suggested by looking at the remains of the wreckage that what actually happens is that a, a boiler exploded and caught the magazine, which was known to happen <laughs> on these types of vessels. Some have suggested uh, Cuban sabotage. And then, of course, there's the story that was run with by William Randolph Hearst and his media company, uh, which was that the Spanish were responsible. Now, Hearst had been running stories that had emphasized certain atrocities that the Spanish were said to have carried out on the Cubans. And it's important to acknowledge that what the Spanish are engaged in, in this conflict at this point, is a type of violence that will look very, very similar to things that you would associate with the First and Second World Wars. Uh, this is one of the first uses of concentration camps through the partition of, of, of the island of Cuba. Atrocity was undoubtedly carried out against Cubans, but it was sensationalized in the American press because certain factions of the elite, like William Randolph Hearst, saw it in their interest to have the United States take control of Cuba and to expel the Spanish in much the, as the same way that they would in the Philippines and as they would go on to do in Cuba. So once again, we have an interested faction of the American elite 
with control over media organs and patronage systems, manipulating facts on the ground to influence public opinion in favor of American involvement in war. There are a few critical texts and an interview that we've lined up uh, to go into a little bit more detail on that. And that'll be the third episode in this series. The Vietnam War still hangs over the U.S. empire to this day. The shame and embarrassment of that conflict um, gets an obligatory mention any time its military is called to act abroad. And yet, the beginning of that conflict uh, should ring very, very eerily and similarly in the ears of anyone who's heard what we've just said. It's important to understand that in the late 40s, 50s, and 60s in the United States, there was a perception that communism and the East were united in a a monolithic effort to capture the world from U.S. capital. Some of this was born out of actual and genuine readings of, you know, Marxist and socialist theory, which had speculated that revolution, communism in one country, would set off a chain reaction in the rest of the world, that working classes would rise up everywhere. And it was this observation by George Kennan at first in his long telegraph, uh, but then in things like the domino theory and containment, that that the Soviet Union and that the Chinese, if they were allowed to knock over one post-colonial government in Southeast Asia, that they would go on and topple the rest as well. Alongside this, we have in the mid-20th century, the maturation of this process that we've been explaining to this point, which was the development of the modern state, the development of its surveillance capacity, the development of its propaganda organs. And what occurs in the Gulf of Tonkin is a complicated, but but nonetheless obfuscated series of naval encounters. It's unclear, and I think we ought to all be skeptical of uh, any easy conclusions on this point, but at least one attack on American naval vessels in the Gulf of Tonkin uh, was an outright fabrication. There have been accounts from people at the scene. Uh, There have been declassified documents since, uh, which we will be reviewing in that episode of the show, which call into doubt that any of these supposed torpedoing of American naval vessels actually occurred. Nonetheless, just as the Nueces incident, just as the sinking of the USS Maine was massaged and manipulated to justify American escalation and involvement in the Mexican-American and the Spanish-American War, so too was the Gulf of Tonkin incident leveraged in the modern media apparatus to convince Americans that the international designs of communism and and of the East were being carried out and realized 
in Southeast Asia. And so what ensued was exactly what you, uh, what you might expect to ensue, uh, which was American escalation, American involvement, and ultimately the horrors and realities of the Vietnam War. This is what we're going to be endeavoring to describe in this series. We will be taking a look at these three incidences, the Oasis, the Maine, and the Gulf of Tonkin. We'll be speaking with experts, looking at evidence with the intention of calling into doubt any easy conclusions, any easily accepted information that might be bandied about in the coming months to manipulate and motivate Americans to consent to engaging in the conflict that seems to be brewing just somewhere over the horizon. This is an independently produced podcast. You can follow us on Twitter at COINTELPROPOD and support more of our work on our Patreon page. The link is in the show notes and in our Twitter bio. We'll see you next week on COINTELPRO.